our text for today is Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the very word of God. In the course of human history, many leaders fought alongside their troops, showing both courage and humility. But other strong men hid in the middle of the troops, sacrificing them for their own security, or even hid far from the battlefield and led their own men into destruction. We have examples like this even in the Word of God and some of King's David's, King David's actions. Strength is attractive, but it also is a temptation for boasting and for pride. While people appreciate a good and righteous strength, there seems to be some misalignment in human hearts that seek after the kind of strength that only cares for itself. We're surrounded by people attracted to the strong and separating or forgetting the weak. Nations flock to strong men for some reason and populations elect dictators over and over again, while many abandon the weak and despise the marginalized. It is truly the survival of the fittest at the expense of the weak. Where is the dignity of being created in the image of God if humans act no better than animals that crave brute strength and abandon the weak? The countercultural gospel of the kingdom is the answer. Beginning with the example of Christ's humility and persevering in the paradigm of church unity. It is in this new community of faith that we see the truest embodiment of strength and humility in Christ. A strong person who looks down on the weak is merely a bully, a person Paul has been admonishing in the previous chapter not to despise, hinder, grieve, or destroy the one for whom Christ died. But the strong who builds the weak up not only tolerates or endures, but also upholds and imparts strength and encouragement. Such is the character of a humble encourager who seeks the glory of God. In a day where the world idolizes power and uses it to impose uniformity on every conscience, the kingdom of our God is the place where we find unity. Unity in diversity, anchored by hope, upheld by humility, maintained by love, furthered by hospitality, pursuing harmony, and working together for glory. Not personal glory, but for the glory of God. Today's passage continues the call to hope and encouragement in unity, which Paul began in the last chapter, and continues here through three main elements, exhortation, instruction, and intercession. The exhortation for the strong to edify the weak in the first two verses. The instruction for hope, by Christ's example and word in verses 3 and 4, 
and the intercession for harmony of mind to the glory of God in verses 5 and 6. Paul then ends his argument in verse 7 with a callback to verse 1 from chapter 14, a call to welcome, which means a call to community and to hospitality. First, the exhortation for the strong to edify the weak. As we said, in this fallen world, a position of strength or a desire for strength sometimes turns into a skewed dream of a life of unhindered liberty. I just want to do whatever I want. I want to be free from debt. I want to be free from depending on others or from my parents. But also, I just want to do whatever I want. Many who pursue such positions do it for their own benefit, and sometimes at the expense of others. In fact, probably oftentimes at the expense of others if we want to do whatever we want. But what God has placed in human hearts, and we know this, is a yearning for justice. To see people use strength for the sake of what is good, what is right, and what is beneficial. There's something even more attractive about strength that tumbles itself for the sake of others. Paul has been arguing since the previous chapter, chapter 14, for the sake of unity between the weak and the strong. A unity in which the weak find freedom and the strong practice restraint. For the strong who looks down on the weak, as I said, is that's just being a bully who uses liberty for himself, selfishly, insensitively, and for his own pleasure. But the strong who edifies the weak through encouragement has found a better way. It is not the way of tolerance or of mere endurance. It is the way of humility of Christ that seeks to edify others. It is the way of counting others more significant than oneself. It is the way of looking not only to one's own interest, but also to the interest of others. Such is the knowledge that it is more blessed to give than to receive. In Christ, we have liberty, but not to disregard others and bring them down. Because in taming our own liberty and restraining it for the sake of others, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we build them up. This is the charitable way of love and of welcome. Now, Paul here is not telling you who are strong or those who are strong. Paul is saying we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. He personally steps into the field by identifying himself with those who are strong. He's not boasting, nor is he cloaking his presentation in a spirit of false humility. He speaks to fellow believers who may have had a conscience that allows them, among other things, to eat anything, from the examples we heard in last chapter. After all, in chapter 14 and verses 14 and 20, he says, everything is clean. But he subjects his freedom of conscience to the obligation, it's not should, but must, of honoring the weaker brother and of lifting him up. Now, the weak are not less faithful or less spiritual. They may have had in their conscience desires to maintain certain practices, such as eating only kosher food or not eating meat from the marketplace that may, that may have been laced with, um, with idol sacrifice. 
They may have felt more at ease maintaining some of the practices that came to them from their family, from their region, or from their culture. A contemporary example for us today, so that we may not feel very aloof of the cultural context, is believers from other religious backgrounds who still feel bound not to drink alcohol, for example, or not to eat certain meats. I'm still trying to learn to appreciate bacon that Pastor Ben <laughs> preached about last week. Or people who pray a certain number of times a day because they came from a culture that prays five times a day. Or who dress a certain way and have a different understanding of what modesty is. Or they might be closer to your culture than you think. They might be Americans after all. But they don't sing some songs that you sing or they may use different instruments or maybe even no instruments at all in their worship. Or they hold to different preferences on second or third order doctrines. If you don't know what second or third order doctrines, I invite you to look up theological triage because it will change your life. You won't die on every single hill in every single conversation. We keep the first matter, the matters of first importance that we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Those are the things that unite us all as believers in Christ. But then when it comes to maybe baptism, and here we hold... To baptism very clearly as a second order doctrine that makes cross on what it is, but then eschatology. I tell people, I don't know if I'm a premillennial, postmillennial, or a millennial, depending on the day that you ask me. These are not to be taken as sinful acts, but rather as failings or weaknesses in regard to the freedom that Christ has called us to. We should not force them to go against their conscience because in doing so, we might force them to sin if they find themselves rebelling against God and their conscience. This is verse 20 of chapter 14. These are brothers and sisters in the universal church and also in the same body of Christ, maybe even here at Crosstown, adopted by the same Lord, worshiping the same God, inhabited by the same Spirit, going to the same heaven, and one day will eat the same supper and sing the same songs. And some of the things that we might differ on here will not matter anymore. Which is a side note. Some people say, when I show up to heaven, I'm going to ask God, is this this or, this, this, or is, is that it? And I think I'm going to be in awe of him. And God is going to say, yep, now just enter the joy of your master and go have some dinner. Because some of the questions we ask in this life may not have any bearing on how we spend our lives together in eternity with the people of God. Because these are people for whom Christ died to redeem for himself as part of his bride and present them all with us in splendor to his Father. So this is where our obligation comes from. If Christ ransomed them, are we to despise them, to judge them, to hinder them, or to destroy them? If a, if a smoldering wick he did not quench, are we in our own strength to douse it with water? If a person is sick, since some of us are medical here, do we smother the person if it's convenient to us, or do we help that person by treating that person 
and edifying that person to see if that person heals? Do we seek destruction or restoration? Grieving or edification? Paul qualifies this obligation both to build the weak up and also not to please ourselves because it might be easier in seeking to please ourselves to destroy our brothers and sisters or grieve them. The default mode of the human heart is to seek to please the self. If you question this, look at your toddlers. Now, sometimes for us adults, pleasing ourselves takes the form of exercising our liberty with disregard to the consciences of others. If you think I'm repeating these things over and over again, Paul does. So I'm following his argument. And if Paul repeats it, then it's going to come on your test. So you better pay attention. This becomes particularly more tangible when we are around believers from other cultures. Now, I'm not speaking of sinful acts, but of totally legitimate actions that the freedom of our consciences permits us to do. But in doing them without restraint, we would cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. Now, some of us have been through training how to engage people from Muslim or other religious backgrounds. We understand how easy it might be for us to offend others even as we seek to welcome them, such as serving pork or offering alcohol or having pets which other cultures do not accept because they are dirty to be inside the house, or entering the house with shoes when people see that as a sign of, again, immodesty maybe, or signs of modesty, what clothes you wear. I'm telling you these things because those are things that I personally experienced both by coming to the United States and also by missionaries who came to Lebanon and had complete disregard to the culture and in doing that, they divided the church. Is that edification? Unfortunately, in exercising liberty, many goers have caused a lot of damage to the name of our Lord and to his church in other parts of the world, especially when confusing biblical directives and cultural preferences. For the sake of the gospel of unity, it is better to be patient and to forbear it is better to tame down our liberty and become some things at least to some people so that we may not cause them to stumble. Paul says all things to all people. But how about we start by at least some things to some people? Freedom is bound not to intentionally allow offensive behavior by disregarding the consciences of other church members. Because our freedom in Christ is bound to the holiness and the glory of God, to whom we have been united through Christ. Such unity must not be jeopardized by us seeking to please ourselves, if we seek to please the holy and glorious God. Back in Romans 12, we were called to renew our mind in order to discern the will of God. Now, many believers today, which is another warning, may have had more theological training than others or may have taken advantage of available resources, or may have been blessed with discernment of deeper and higher matters of faith and the will of God, and some maybe even here in our own church. Such people are also called through this text to humble themselves. 
forsake theological pride and seek to use what they have gained to edify the community of Christ we all belong to, not to destroy it, not to divide it, and that for the sake of the unity and, the, and for the service of God. Paul then qualifies the exhortation of pleasing our neighbor. In verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. This is not a mere act of tolerance or blanket approval of anything the neighbor does. Not all actions are good or edifying, but believers exhort one another toward love and good deeds. This pleasing is not the type of seeking the approval of men that Paul warns against in Galatians 1.10. If I were to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That is allowing for sinful behavior. But here the pleasing is about enduring the weak brother's powerlessness in his new life to be free from certain practices or beliefs, while at the same time seeking to help our brother and sister grow in maturity, not by reshaping the practices, but by helping one another to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God and renewing our minds to do what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul then moves into his point of instruction for hope by Christ's example and word in the next two verses. Now, every good teaching includes good examples. And what better example for Paul to use in this point of instruction here than the example of Christ? Jesus, who is the strongest man that ever lived, did not seek his own pleasure. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, not my will, but, by your, will, but your will be done. Christ was not marked by asthenia, inability, or powerlessness, but by his own will, he humbled himself, did not look to his own interests, and embraced the forbearance of the suffering of the cross as he sought to please his Father. In Paul's quotation from Psalm 69.9, which is what the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, that's where it comes from, the second part of Psalm 69 verse 9. We see how our Lord, who is strong, endured the reproaches of the weak for the glory of God, and to build up the weak for the glory of God. Were Christ to please himself, he could have destroyed them and us. He could have hit the reset button for all the earth. He could have called for thousands upon thousands of angels to fight the battle. But in seeking to please his father, he endured their weaknesses, which in this particular case was manifested not as a failing or powerlessness, but as full-on sin and hatred and enmity that you and I participated in. So that through his humility and his obedience, he would take on himself there and our weakness, there and our sin by becoming sin so that he would welcome them and build them up in the strength of his righteousness. If Christ did this for his enemies, how much more are we to endure, build up, and please our brothers and sisters in Christ? And how much more, then, are we to immerse ourselves in the word of God that has been written for our instruction? Paul's apparent little digression here seems, might seem a bit odd, to modern ears, as if he were making a big deal out of a very short quotation. Because he moves on to say, 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is a digression. Paul stops his argument to speak about how scripture is important. This should serve as a clear and present affirmation of the inerrancy of the Old Testament scriptures, which are quoted by both Jesus and Paul. It was to the advantage of Roman believers from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds to lean on what has been written in order to live in the newness of the Christian life to which they now belonged. In the same manner, it is to our advantage today to lean on both Old and New Testament for our instruction. It is not only the red letters of Jesus or the New Testament writings, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. And in Greek, all means all. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable for endurance and for encouragement. If we need encouragement and we don't know the Psalms, we better go read them. As we endure, the word of God encourages us and the body of believers, and so we find hope. And Paul already said in Romans 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Christ leaned on the Old Testament, and he quoted it regularly. And we would do well by knowing it thoroughly. In fact, I was reading Ezekiel 35 yesterday, And um, I had written the sermon last week, but in Ezekiel 35, let me digress here a bit. We, We elders know this passage because it has a lot of warnings. But God warns the shepherds of Israel who are strong. Hear this. Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. Now, I want you to think yourself as a shepherd as well. Just put yourself in that position. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And then God goes for 13 times to say, this is my flock, my flock, my flock, my sheep, my sheep, my sheep. 13 times he says they are mine. And at the end, he says, I myself will be the judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Now, you may not think of yourself as a shepherd, but look at this, between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Some sheep are gentler than others, and some sheep are weaker than others. You don't have to have a goat to be kicking around. It looks like some sheep kick around also. So God is reminding them and us that he will protect his flock to the end. Christ endured so that we may have hope. And in our new life and union with him, even in suffering, we share in his hope with the promise of sharing in his glory. 
We are called to share the burdens of one another, not to bully one another or push with our shoulders. And not being insensitive as we act selfishly, but rather seek to uphold and encourage those who are, whose consciences are weaker than, our, than others and than ours, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit so that the whole body might be growing together in maturity into the head who is Christ. That's Ephesians 4. All of this has been written for our instruction, for our hope. What happens when we lose hope? We fall into disarray, into darkness, and into disunity. We give up. We quit. We stop pursuing our calling. We may all have seen people who are hopeless. You know what that disposition is. We cannot legitimately give other people hope if we ourselves do not have it. We lose our ability to identify with the weaknesses of others and of showing empathy and providing care. We ourselves would fall into helplessness. But scripture that has been written for our instruction and for endurance and for our encouragement instructs us to approach his mercy seat with confidence where we can receive mercy and find grace. Where we can cast our cares on him. Where we know that the Son and the Holy Spirit are advocating for us and interceding for us so that we may have joy, peace, faith, hope, and love. Scripture is the fountain of hope. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Does that not give you hope? To see this body built up in love, strengthened by unity, enduring with hope, and worshiping in harmony. I can imagine just seeing Paul from a distance, sitting there 2,000 years ago, somewhere in Corinth, writing these letters to the Romans, and as this is swelling up in him, Paul wants to pray or move into a doxology. So he has this intercession, this spoken prayer in the next two verses where he links Scripture with the God of Scripture. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The endurance and encouragement Scripture gives are all breathed out by God who is the God of of encouragement, and endurance. And he gave it for our edification. Scripture does not change. And it's always effective because the God who gave it does not change and is always ready to see to it that his name is glorified and his people praise him as they live together in unity and glorify him in harmony. There's so much beauty in the world of music, in orchestras and in choirs, Each instrument has its own shape, obviously, beauty, keys, and tone. And you can find much delight in listening to a piano alone or a cello or a saxophone, but I find even more delight in listening to instruments playing together 
to produce a glorious melody. They don't have to play the same notes, but in harmony, they come together to, pr to produce rich and melodious rhythms and symphonies. Imagine if one decides to do its own thing. It immediately disrupts the harmony. Or imagine if all played their strength at the highest level the entire time. It would just be cacophony and disorder and disunity. Now, let's imagine this a bit more clearly within the setting of an ensemble of voices or of a choir with different ranges and timbers, the tenors and the baritones and the basses and the mezzos and the sopranos and the altos. At times, maybe in the finale or maybe in certain measures in unison, singers or musicians are given liberty to exercise their full strength. But more often, they come together, bringing their voices together, and sing different parts while still seeking to produce a beautiful harmony. Oftentimes, that harmony means that the stronger voices have to tame things down so that the beauty that results is made up of one final voice under the guidance of a masterful conductor. And that takes effort and humility. Now, some of you may have had the opportunity or the sorrow of standing next to me when I sing. <laughs> and I have a strong voice. And growing up, I just wanted to exercise it to its full strength. <laughs> But then when I started singing in choirs or ensembles, it was very interesting because I had to tame it down. And that meant I had to be humble, learn humility, learn from people who know better, learn how to sing so that I don't overpower others, learn how to blend in. And that is not easy. It takes effort, humility, learning, and also submitting to others who are stronger or more experienced. They can teach us how to endure, bear, not please ourselves, and build others up. It teaches us how to be mindful of others. And in the church of Christ Jesus, like in a choir or in an orchestra, we are all together in front of the great composer, the conductor of the universe. And he desires for all of us to live together in harmony, in such harmony, as Paul says, in accord with him that the product of our lives and of our worship would be one voice in a harmony of praise that sings glory to the ancient of days. Whether we are great or small, male or female, Jew or Greek, strong or weak, our prayer should be like Paul's, that the God of endurance and encouragement would grant us all to live in this harmony and to have one voice to glorify God alone. This can happen through unity and the bonds of love that is patient and kind, not arrogant nor rude, but bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We would do so for the joy of seeing our fellow worshipers built up in a harmony of voices, even when they differ, but blending together, promoting and elevating one another. That's the beauty of choirs, is that voices actually play off one another and promote and accentuate one another. As the whole focus is on the final voice that we lift up together, to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Now hear this. Seeking to please one another in this way does not decrease our pleasure. It magnifies it, and it multiplies it within our community of faith. How great is that? Because when you stop playing your full strength always, and you see how your strength can humbly build others up, you take more joy that the whole body is growing together. If all were harmony and humility, Paul would likely not have reason to write chapter 14 and these seven verses here for both the Roman believers and for our instruction today. He has made his point very poignantly, and he wrote with yearning, because the ways of the church should not be the ways of the world. The world idolizes strength and worships power. Then the world turns and wonders at the fallouts of such wrong behaviors. From boasting, lack of humility, lack of thoughtfulness or civility, from the destruction of the rid- and the ridicule of the weak, from the disregard of consciences and the elimination of liberties, examples abound all around us in the realm of business, sports, politics, and even the church. But people are in awe of a strength that humbles itself for the sake of others, of a king that doesn't hide behind his people but fights among his people, of a leader who serves. People are in awe of the love that unites Christians together. Like Paul, in Christ we have many grounds to identify with the strong. There's no reason to claim false weakness or robe ourselves in false humility. We've been all set free and have been given great promises, we who are in Christ. We have been given the exhortation to forsake selfishness and to edify others. And I believe this is why Paul reuses the word welcome in verse 7, which he did back at the beginning of chapter 14. Welcome the weak in faith, not to quarrel over opinions and hear Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. God has given every believer at least one talent and variable measures of faith, which means different strength. But every talent and every measure of faith he has given us, he has filled it to its rim. He does not give faulty faith. The glass might differ in size, but he has filled each glass to its rim. And he pours into each believer the fullness of his love. God's love has been poured into our hearts. And he pours into each believer the same Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Not part of the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's like the voices of a choir. None is better. Even if some are stronger, but all are needed for the success of the harmony. And the more they know one another, the better they know how to work together. In the same way for us believers, to be in harmony with one another, 
endure one another's failings, and build one another up, we need to know one another. This process does not happen for the choir or the orchestra at the time of the concert. But in the many meetings and trainings, they do together. And for us, it does not happen merely on Sunday, but in our bringing our lives together in the one community to which we have all been saved, welcoming one another, caring for one another, eating together, communicating together, joining our lives together in the one body of Christ. This language of welcome means hospitality. It means life together. The more we know one another, guess what? The less suspicious we become of, of our brother and sister. And do you know what suspicion does to relationships? It's not good. If you, don't, if, you, if you are suspicious of your doctor, you wouldn't trust her. If you are suspicious of the one building your house, you probably don't want to live under that roof. And if you are suspicious of your brother and sister, how are you going to harmonize with them and be united to them? It is not hard to be welcoming in our homes. And please don't hide behind excuses. I'm tired. I need to take care of my family. My house is too small. I don't know how to cook. I don't want to offend. When in doubt, you can, I guess, do bacon. It's, I heard it's pretty easy. Now let's try, trust Christ to use us in welcoming one another. It does not have to be fancy. In fact, it would be good for us to see the lives of one another's day to day with all the messes and everything that happens and the food on the ground or the toys somewhere. If, if I may use your example, I had the Bachmans over a couple weeks ago and then the next day I was finding toys all over the house. And it was, it was, just, it was just funny. Thank God I didn't step on anything. <laughs> it just brings joy to my heart to, to see that. The house is different, right? It, there's, there's a different life in the house when these touches of our brothers and sisters are there. It's good for us to see the lives of one another and imagine how much we can learn from one another's lives and relationships. See how marriages are enduring or growing or resolving conflict. See how our brothers and sisters are parenting their children. See how they are reaching out to their neighbors. See how they talk about conflict or not talk about it. And there's more than one way I heard of conflict resolution. How they share testimonies of what the Lord has done. How they encourage one another. And how you learn from another culture or way of life. And many other examples. The truth is all of us are weak at some level. And have consciences that are powerless to do some things or not do some things that people in the same church have no problem doing. Such is the way of Christ. The language of hospitality is throughout Scripture. Christ has made a dwelling place for us. God has made his dwelling place among us. He has built a tabernacle. Christ is preparing a place many rooms. There, there is an eternal rest. There was a Passover meal. 
soon we will have communion together, which is reimagining that Last Supper or celebrating the grace of God, of the body and blood of Christ that have been spilled for us. And then we look forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. All of those are part of the language of hospitality. The homes and foods that he has given us are one way he equips us to welcome one another. This is the manner of life that he has called us to, even as he humbled himself and endured our failings, leaving the glories of heaven for a time to welcome us into his fold and prepare a meal and the place for us to dwell in eternally. All of us together. The psalm says it is good for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. Let us dwell together. And we do that, guess what? Not at Starbucks in our own homes. Not only on Sunday, but in everyday life together. God is the king full of strength who did not hide behind his army, but fought the battle on behalf of us all. His work was for the glory of God, Christ's work. And his high priestly prayer in John 17 was for our unity, centered around God himself, his covenant, and his word for the glory of God. We are not better than our master who endured unimaginable suffering. Let us not grow weary of enduring one another, building one another up, welcoming one another so that our Lord would receive all the glory. Let's not forsake the worship of God together, because in that we find hope, encouragement, and harmony. Like the reformers used to say, and like the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach used to sign every one of his compositions at the end, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, who has welcomed us all into one kingdom, one hope, one light, one faith, one body, and one Lord, who is over all and through all and in all. Let us pray. Father, we praise your name and give you glory and honor. As Paul said, to the glory of God alone, because you are the glorious God who have made all things and all people and us, your people, for your glory, so that we may worship you. And you have called us from death to life. You have won the battle, and you call us to live together in harmony and unity for the sake of the name of Christ, that the name would be praised among us and proclaimed among the nations. So we thank you that you are the God of hospitality who made a place for us, who is preparing a meal for us, and who one day will welcome us. And we thank you today that we also are being welcomed by you to commune together as we partake of these elements, the body and blood of our Lord, that remind us of this tangible grace. Every single time we gather to remember the work that you have done, and remember that we belong to Jesus and that all of us together will one day come before you. So God, help us harmonize together and be united and give us hope so that we would rejoice 
and seeing our brothers and sisters being edified, all for your glory, so that you may receive all glory, power, and honor in Christ Jesus in this church. Amen.